0: On today's show, our guest is Kate Minari. Sometimes you meet people that have lived, are still living and embody absolutely everything it means to go all in. Now, I don't know about you, but when I meet people like this, I feel inspired to do more. And I know after you hear this podcast, you're going to feel the same way as well. Kate grew up in Sydney and joined the Royal Australian Navy at the age of 18. She went through the Australian Defence Force Academy, completed her Bachelor of Science degree, and qualified as a Navy helicopter pilot in 2006. Shortly after qualifying, Kate was selected to go on exchange with the Royal Marine Commando Helicopter Force in the UK. She headed to England, qualified on the Sea King helicopter, and while she was on exchange in the UK, she completed three operational tours of Afghanistan. Kate enjoyed an amazing exchange in England, and she was lucky enough to participate in the Diamond Jubilee with the Queen, and she even received her Afghanistan campaign medal from Prince Charles, no less. Most importantly, she made some very close and lifelong friends while she stayed in the UK. Outside of the military, Kate is an accomplished speaker and continues to give back to aviation as an air crash investigator for the Accident Transport Safety Bureau. Kate is a true inspiration and she embodies absolutely everything it means to go all in. I'm excited she's here, so please help me in welcoming Kate Minari. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Kate. Welcome to the Go All In podcast. It's really great to have you here.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me, Robert. I'm happy to be here.
0: All right, it's been a bit of effort to kind of coordinate calendars, but here we are. I've been looking forward to the little quiz on the front of this show. I wanna grill the fellow sailor, and I'm gonna grill a little bit harder than I normally would, because I'm talking to an officer, and the ORs. kind of good to have a little bit of fun with that. All right, we start off with the show with a quick quiz. First thing that comes to mind, it's in no particular order, and it's a bit random as well, just a little get to know you. Tell me, do you prefer cardio or weights? Cardio. Oh, she was she, <laughs> not going to the gym at all.
1: Uh, no, I had to think about it. I love cardio, but I tend to do more weights now. Yeah, strangely.
0: Nice, nice. I always like to ask this loaded question of helicopter pilots. Can you fly a fixed-wing plane?
1: I can, yes, okay. but I would trust me more in a helicopter.
0: Do you have a, a license?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've got a PPL fixed-wing, but then a CPL and an ATPL for helicopters.
0: With yeah, helicopters as well. Cool. Do you prefer the beach or The bush. The bush. It's a bit of a loaded question. I probably know the answer already. Do you prefer speaking or writing?
1: Speaking. But, yeah, you, but I like both, but I like the speaking. Yeah, I like the interaction with people.
0: I like the immediate feedback you get from speaking, but I also like the solitude of writing. Although yes. writing sometimes I feel like I'm shouting down an empty hallway. A mate of mine is a writer, he said that, and that's like really accurate. It feels like you don't get much feedback. Does that ever happen to you?
1: I tend to feel like I write and write and write lots of pages and then at the end sometimes I think I'm not sure exactly what I just wrote that's that's kind of what I get sometimes
0: I call that freestyling like a muso just jamming away I feel like I can do that on a keyboard as well I get to yep. about I don't know about four or five A4 pages and then the freestyling stops and I've got no more creativity for the day though that's it
1: yep no that can happen definitely <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell me what was your first car
1: oh a Nissan Pulsar very normal little hatchback four or five seats quite a conservative car
0: that sounds all very sensible.
1: They've all been pretty sensible I've got to admit. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first helicopter? The Squirrel, which is a pretty pretty maneuverable little thing, yeah. It's good fun.
0: No way you never you never flew a piston helicopter?
1: No, no. Started so the Squirrel was the smallest and then it's only gotten bigger and yet more powerful from there.
0: Bigger and bigger from there, that's for sure. We'll get into that, I'm sure. All right, last typical podcasting question, last one. We've had 10 minutes with anybody you could go back in time for 10 minutes and spend that with anyone in history who would you uh visit and what would you say
1: oh gosh that's a really difficult one
0: who's the first one that comes to mind who did visit
1: oh fairly on the controversial side of it hitler keeps coming to mind but in a um just in a curiosity and interest side of things not it-
0: you know what? Someone asked me that question, and I thought that was an awesome question to ask on a podcast because it really puts people on the spot, and it makes you think of the first thing that comes to mind, and that was the exact thing that I had. It was yeah. Hitler, of all things. It's not controversial, and what would you say, Rob? I wouldn't say anything. I'd strangle the guy in 1939.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty hard <laughs> when people are like, why do you want to meet him? And I'm like, well, not... not. Yeah, it's really hard to
0: explain, but I think he would... It actually wouldn't take me 10 minutes. It'd take me about 90 seconds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It'd change the world
0: forever, maybe. Yeah. All right, a little bit of fun to kick it off and a little bit of controversy too. I kind of like that. I don't think that's that controversial. I think most people would agree with us. Okay, people, come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success?
1: All right, so being military, that's primarily my background. It's going to be a military story. And it would actually probably be I i was selected for a posting to the UK to join Commando Helicopter Force and fly with them. So that was definitely my biggest goal in the moment because it was moving to the other side of the world. It was going to fly in a helicopter force that was quite operational. So they'd been in Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, And also out of the whole crew that were there, there were about 150 frontline pilots and air crewmen and none of them were female. So that was another, that was going to be interesting. Also, you know, being on the other side of the world, away from family and everything like that, it was just one of these opportunities that I think, yeah, I had to perhaps think a little bit about how it was all going to work, but it was definitely a decision. I was like, yep, I'm in. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's go all in. Do it completely. How far
0: were you into your naval career when you had the opportunity to go on exchange like that? Because that doesn't come up very often for many people. So that first of all, you're very lucky to have had that. It seems like you were fairly early on in your career, right?
1: It was, yes. So I'd studied at the Defence Academy and I'd um, studied a Bachelor of Science, but then I had only gone partway through my pilots training. So I'd done the two basic fixed wing, well, the basic fixed wing, the advanced fixed wing on the PC9 and then the squirrel conversion course. And that was it. So the opportunity came up there and I was one of four pilots selected to go over. So it was the yeah, opportunity I would never have passed up.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Did you, were you qualified on the seeking here in Australia or you, we'd stopped using those things by then, right?
1: No. So we, go we ahead. stopped using the seeking in 2011. So this was back oh, in 2008. Yeah. So we're still using them, but no, I hadn't transitioned from the, I guess the basic helicopter, which is a squirrel onto an operational type. So this opportunity came up, and I've always obviously been focused towards becoming an operational pilot and hopefully flying in a, in a war zone or some sort of conflict zone because that's the pinnacle of military of service for most people. So this came up and it was an easy decision for me, but with a lot of, you know, a lot of considerations, but easy in the end.
0: It's a really interesting career path that happened to you because if you rewind 10 or 15 years, it's just unheard of what happened. It's very similar to what happened to me when I joined the Army. I left the Navy and I was out for probably six months. It took me six months to get into the Army. I went to recruit school. I went to infantry school and I went straight across on operations to Timor. And it sounds like you did the same thing. You finished your degree. You finished your basic pilot training. You went to the UK and got qualified and then straight into theatre.
1: Yeah, Amazing definitely. Position, right? Yeah, I finished, I think, my course in the UK in the August. We then did some other courses like uh, desert training, which obviously you can't do that in the UK. So we went to Kenya for that. We did a couple of weeks of resistance to interrogation. And then by the December, I was in Afghanistan.
0: How yeah. long was the, the conversion course in total then for Sea King?
1: The Sea King was probably about nine months, including ground school.
0: It's not really very long. It sounds like a long time and it feels like forever when you're doing that stuff. But when you look back, it's real short, isn't it? From the transition from going from Squirrel to Qualified Seeking Pilot to in theatre. What was the gap between getting qualified and getting in theatre?
1: Oh, So Seeking Qualified, like I said, about three to four months.
0: Yeah. And then you deployed. How quickly did that happen after you were qualified?
1: Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, that was three months. So in the August, I was qualified. And then by the December, I was in Afghanistan.
0: Did you do a workup?
1: Yes. Yeah, they do a – well, your whole pilots course, I guess, on the Sea King was all around the operational side of it. So we did obviously the basic handling of the Sea King, but then a large portion of the course was all about single pilot ops, low-level troop movements, and working, you know, very closely with your crewmen on board. So that that was what the tail end of the course focused on. And then before Afghanistan, you do another workup again of a couple of weeks, you know, out working with the Army, out on Salisbury Plains in the UK, doing all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, you did a bit of a work-up package just before going out as well.
0: I thought it was a really interesting text on your website that says, the only Royal Australian Navy female pilot to serve in Afghanistan with the Royal Marines. It's like it's all jumbled. Everything's jumbled up. What's a, an Australian sailor doing in Afghanistan flying with the Royal Marines? Like, let's, Did you ever have to pinch yourself and go, man, like, how lucky am I? What the hell?
1: definitely lots of times over like i said it's a long career it's a long training pipeline and then to get that opportunity to do i guess exactly what your dream would be what the pinnacle would be yeah it was pretty awesome and and you know i made the most of that opportunity and had a great time doing it i can remember when i was at the school of infantry
0: and you know at the time it was only a six-week course you know you did like a nine-month course which is a long time imagine six weeks and then picking up and going on operations real time. That was scary. And I, re- I remember the, the platoon sergeants and the corporals that have been there. They've been in the army for a long time, obviously. And in the 1990s, they were the dry years. There was not much mm, that really yeah. happened for the Australian Defense Force. I mean, I was in the Navy at that time and I traveled around the world and went on ops a couple mm. of times as well. But if for the army, they hadn't been deployed anywhere. And I can remember the, the platoon sergeant, you know, wanting to give his left arm to be in yeah. the digger's position, to be able to step off that boat and go into operations like that. Did you have some really young people like yourself around or was, was it a, a nice mix of experienced and crusty guys mixed with younger, new people like yourself?
1: Well, in terms of, I guess, the Aussies that went over, we were all fairly young. And then once we were over there, though, like, come under helicopter force, as I said, it's been – constantly involved in one operation after another. So there was a real mix. They had people like us who just come off course straight into um, the operations and then they had a lot who – there were some there who had done, you know, several Afghanistan tours, several Iraq tours, several Bosnia tours. Wow. And this was just the cycle they were in. So some really experienced people with us as well.
0: So they'd seen it all before or was there stuff that you'd never seen before when you were in that Afghan theatre?
1: Yeah, I think every place is different, like the tactics that the enemy are using, even the terrain and the way that the operation is run varies, you know, between each conflict zone. So there was new stuff there. But in terms of handling the aircraft, you know, the old and bold definitely had that down pat, yeah.
0: Was there some old, bold pilots? Because that's a saying, yeah, there's no such thing.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, there were, but not not silly pilots. Not yeah. They still, you know, they took calculated risk. There was no cowboying and showing off. There was definitely... Pretty professional flying and all very calculated.
0: So take me through the the mindset of going from Seeking training, what do you jump on a C-17 and head straight over to Afghanistan? Where did you land? Did you land in Kabul or somewhere else?
1: Oh, So because I was there with the uh, British, I was literally embedded with them. So I didn't spend any time at all with the Aussies. So my first tour, yeah, we flew into Kandahar and then operated out of Kandahar for a while because that's where – commander helicopter force was and then my second and third tour they were based in camp bastion so we used to live in kandahar but fly down to camp bastion and Helmand province for the first tour and then my second and third one we were flying in Helmand province out of camp bastion so it was all like i said that was the british area of operation so that's where we worked out of and apparently it was uh it was probably the nastiest place you could be in afghanistan but i didn't realize that at the time
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's probably a good thing that you didn't realize right
1: Mm-hmm. I think when you're involved in it, and that's what the British all did. I didn't know any different, really, until one of the Aussies said, they'd asked me, where, where was I and what was I doing? And they were quite surprised that I was in Helmand Province dealing with the stuff that we dealt with there.
0: Yeah. Tell me about your first sortie. Did you go, like, on a, on a familiarisation flight? You'd pull out of the airfield there where you are, and, you know, is it safe? Do you, get, do you take fire? What happened on that first sortie? Where was your mind at?
1: Yeah, well, first Saudi, so literally landed in Afghanistan three days before that on my first tour. We did all the introduction to theatre lectures and the practical stuff you've got to do. Got to issue the ammunition and all that, zeroed weapons. And then so first flight was scheduled to be a bit of a round robin around the uh, area of operations. Still moving troops and kit, but it was supposed to be a familiarisation like you used to see as much as we could, you know, during that first flight, a daytime flight, you know, trying to keep it all all as straightforward as possible, and so we took off out of Kandahar, and we did about a forty-minute transit over the desert into uh, Helmand Province, and you know descended down to about hundred feet, which is where we operated, you know, normally. That's where we would operate, you know, and came over the populated area, and then it was just you know there's there's radio calls starting. I'm looking out the window obviously because I was the flying pilot. Just it was a different world. There was just so much to see. <laughs> And, you know, we're going along getting clearances into our first landing site and all that good stuff. And then there was just this burst of automatic machine gunfire. Uh, so close, in fact, that I thought it might have been our crewman firing out of the aircraft. Gosh. It was that loud. But it wasn't. Uh, it was enemy. Confirmed later on, the, the aircraft captain in the left seat had seen, it was a, like a pillion, a passenger on the back of a motorbike uh, firing at us. I didn't see that, and that's probably a good thing. I definitely heard it. Um, so, yeah, that split second of, oh, my God, did that just happen? And then, you know, straight into the making the defensive manoeuvring, you know, more more aggressive. And I'm starting to look at gauges and how the aircraft's handling. The aircraft captain's straight on the radio calling it in. He's also speaking to the crewman in the back, making sure our troops are all all right, looking for bullet holes. Uh, you know, all of this while we're closing on the first landing. So we're only a couple of miles away, so it was... It was busy. It was hectic. And then the aircraft captain just turned to me at one stage, and he he was like, "Are you happy? You know, are you happy to go in?" And I was like, "Yep." Yeah. So that was it. You know, about ten seconds later, we pulled up in a cloud of dust, landed, kicked the troops out, and and that was it. That was like the welcome to Afghanistan. So,
0: is that something that stands out in your mind, or is that something that was like a daily daily event that happened to you?
1: It definitely wasn't daily. I did have several other occasions where, you know, the aircraft I was in was fired upon and also intelligence saying that we would be fired upon, so that was another situation. Mm-hmm. But we were definitely operating in an area where it was a possibility every day. We we would fly around with Apache escorts because of the, the level of threat where we were. But I guess, and I'm not sure if we'll talk about it later, but that for me was, I guess, one of those moments where after it had been finished and we were landed safely it really was a turning point for me just in terms of feeling like I'd been you know tested in in the most difficult of circumstances and as a pilot military pilot you know that's got to be the like we said that that's the pinnacle it's the toughest it's ever going to get and I was really happy like like so I you know I dealt with it as best as I could and the aircraft captain was really happy with how I dealt with it and you know I was happy and it just boosted my confidence and You know, I thought, right, I can do this. This is what I signed up for. This is what my nine years so far has been building towards. And, yeah, it was a good moment. Like I said, it was um, a relief in one sense, but also a real confidence builder. I think the people
0: listening that have not been in the military would think that we were crazy saying that that was, oh, that was a good experience. They they look at you and think, how can being shot at be a good experience? And I always say to people that the military is the best and worst experience of your life. You have incredible friends, the most incredible experiences, but in the most unbelievable circumstances. And it's almost impossible to describe or compare that to something something
1: else. Had that been your experience? Yeah, that's definitely it. And I I do think it is sometimes hard to describe that to people. Like you said, your average person probably couldn't think of anything worse than being on operations in a war zone. But I try and always liken it to, people's normal careers and, and they're obviously got a career and the job they do and what they're working towards. And I guess I just liken it that that was my job. That's what I trained for. And, you know, that's that was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be tried and tested in the most difficult of environments because that's, that's what you spend years working towards.
0: Yeah, you're training towards that in the military. I absolutely know what that feels like, even though I didn't only had kind of six weeks or really 12 weeks of training but I was a little bit older in the infantry. The same thing happened to me when I found myself on operations. And I'm, and I'm certain that there would have been British troops and Aussie troops that had experienced the same things as me. They, they join up, recruit school, infantry school, basic training, and then off they go on operations. It's, uh, that's just half of the course. It's a voluntary military that we live in, right?
1: Yeah, and that that's a pretty quick process because I guess being a pilot, we're used to years of training, whereas for you guys, it's very quick, in and out, and off you go. So yeah, very yeah, different. Yeah,
0: and when you qualify, you realise how little you actually know, and you know that's I think that's with anything that you do in life, you kind of got a license to learn once you reach that qualification. Tell me that the Sea the, the King is an older platform compared to what's mm-hmm. out there, and compared to what you moved on to after that, you know, with the latest technology in the MRH90 and stuff like that. Yes. Was it reliable in country? Did it break all the time or was it a good bit of kit?
1: No. So the Sea King actually, once it was up and running, it would just go all day. And that's literally what we did. So once we, we'd we start it in the morning, and I think one morning I actually got into the aircraft at about 7am, started it up and we just left it running all day. We wow. When we refueled, when we get our troops on board, we just leave it, leave it all, rotors right, running. And then that particular day, I remember... We landed and I shut down at about 7pm and got out and it had been going, it had gone all day, not a hiccup. So really reliable ones that's up and running. Also a really good and well-known, I guess, repair schedule and, you know, requirement for spares. So if it ever did go on service for the guides there at um, CHF would have it turned around often overnight doing engine changes overnight, you know, and it was back in the program the next day. So it was a pretty good workhorse out there.
0: Was it a really high tempo of operations for you?
1: Yeah. So when we were out there, we would do tasking two days in a row. The next day we'd do sort of maintenance test flying and ground running and then have a day off and then it would start again. So we did a four-day rotating cycle and on, you know, your normal tasking day could be anywhere between about five to 12 hours in the aircraft, just dependent on what they had for that day, time of year and the other operations going on because so we did a lot of support work for some of the other big operations as well.
0: Is there extensive briefing and debriefing processes or is it just you just on ops, brief what you got to brief, go and do it, come back, debrief it quickly and then go and do it all again? Or is it still the same front and back end of it?
1: I would say the debriefing side of it tended to fall away perhaps a little bit when you were doing your normal regular tasking. You know, you almost debriefed as you, you know, taxi back in saying, anyone got any points. And you also wrote down notes, I guess, during the, during the tasking day. But beforehand, you definitely, at least an hour and a half before, had the full weather, intelligence, operations. And we would actually brief every single landing on the big map prior to getting in the aircraft. So we knew exactly which way we would go in, which way we would depart, and what we had to do. Though so we could change that airborne, but we definitely briefed beforehand quite thoroughly, yes.
0: Were you flying with the same person all the time? Would they mix up the crews,
1: No, uh, they mix the crews up, though... We tried to keep the same crew for about a two-week period. So you got to know each other, which was really good, for a couple of weeks and then just you know rotated from that because that that whole thing of, I guess, trying to keep it fresh so that people are at the top of their game. And you can get a bit familiar with people and that can sometimes lead to perhaps you thinking something's going to happen or they've done something but they haven't because you just think that's what's going on. So mixing it up always kept you a bit more on your toes. and, And also gave new people the opportunity to fly with, Different uh, crewmen and pilots, you know, and and you can get a lot of good experience from the people you're flying with.
0: Yeah, it's a good progression. I'm always mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at a human being's capacity to learn. And I've never never flown a real helicopter. I've flown simulators a couple of times, but never a, a real one. And I don't know how to describe it, but I heard some other people describe it just yesterday. Really good on another podcast I was listening to. He was a he was a Seahawk pilot. He said flying a helicopter for the uninitiated is like tapping your head, rubbing your tummy and tap dancing at the same time. And the mechanical, the hands and feet of it is like real flying. It's not like, you know, you're like the bug smashes that I fly. You kind of trim the thing and it flies in a straight line. It's very easy. So you've got a very hands-on thing happening there, but then you've got all the situational awareness required, the briefing in and out. You've got people in the back. There's just more than you happening there. How did you go when you first started with that on operations? Because... Flying the aircraft is something that you learned to do and you got the hang of it, you're qualified to do that, but now you're in operations and there's more to think about. Take me on the journey of that. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, so it was a journey, that's very true, because the first tour I went on, I only flew as the handling pilot. So I sat in the right-hand seat and that, that was my main responsibility. I would obviously do the pre-landing checks and those sorts of things with the, the crewman down the back, but the aircraft captain that sat next to you did all the switches the radio calls, the clearances, they did all the weight and balance, you know, for when inevitably more people or kit turn up everywhere you go, there's more there than what was uh, Mm -hmm. requested, so that was always a challenge. And you really just focused on the flying and I guess like you're talking about trying to build situational awareness until you're actually really comfortable in that environment because the hot and high conditions and dusty conditions in Afghanistan did take a lot of your concentration because The aircraft handles differently. You've got probably less power available. Mm. The margin for error gets, you know, smaller and smaller out there. So really that's all you're focusing on to start with. And it's not until you get quite comfortable with how the aircraft's going to react that you can start to, I guess, open your awareness to what else is going on. And then gradually, you know, your aircraft captain will give you more responsibility, might get you to take one or two of the radios. And it's a pretty graduated process, which does put a lot of, um, responsibility on the captain because they can load up their pilot you know more or less just depending on their capability and then my next tour I went out and did half as a flying pilot but then I graduated to being an aircraft captain but I had quite an experienced person paired with me flying the aircraft so that was kind of a mentoring situation then my last tour I was out there as an aircraft captain and a formation commander so in charge of both the aircraft so again that was another you know highlight of the career because that's that's as good as it's ever going to get
0: I mean you, you've got to go all in when you're on operations that's just the way it is and and you know I don't mean to keep harping on the catch cry that it is but you really do how long were you on that first tour when you realized that your brain had caught up and we're starting to become a little bit routine you're in the groove I've oh, got it I've oh, got it I've oh, got it you don't have to think about it so much a bit more automatic were you a couple of weeks in a couple of months in how far was it?
1: I'd say at least a couple of weeks, because even just trying to get used to the names of locations, because yeah. obviously different country, yeah, you're Miami. not as familiar with the names, yeah. and they call the patrol bases and the the main operating bases all sorts of not not as obvious as I thought they might have been the names. So, but once you get to that, you know, you, you start feeling a bit more comfortable, and yeah, you talk about going all in. It's definitely that situation where you have to do that, because you have to trust that you are going to do the right thing at the right time. And then, you know, as the responsibility comes up and you're making some pretty critical decisions, yeah, you've got to go all in, trust what you're doing and just, you know, go with it 100%. Yeah, I think, and and again,
0: for the folks that haven't been in the military, I just want to kind of highlight that go all in in the military and, and how, what my view is, maybe you can share yours as well, Kate, is I sort of think you can't really be thinking about anything else. The only thing that you think about is the task and the job that you're doing at hand. And when I was in the Navy, it was the same way, you know, sitting in front of a, a radar scope, you know, or, or sonar looking for a submarine or operating some EW gear, listening in for an aircraft coming in at you, or you're sitting on the end of a rifle as an infantry soldier. The only thing you can really concentrate on is, is that job. There is no side hustle. There is no side job. There's only that in your life. Is that, was that your experience as well?
1: Definitely. I often find that with flying in general, once I'm airborne, there is nothing else. Like you say, I, mm. I have that ability to just switch off and concentrate, but also enjoy what I'm doing. And then on ops, that's a pretty key thing. And we do keep a close eye on our people because often, you know, when people are having issues at home or something else is going on, you can see it in their performance and, you know, you, you've got to help them sort that out because that's, you can't have people who aren't 100% focused when they're on the job.
0: Got to get your head in the game, right? And you have to be all in on that game, especially on operations. How long did your first tour in the AO last for you?
1: my um, first two was four months, and that was normal so for so commander helicopter force would do between three or four months, and then they'd go back for six months and then come back out again for six months for, so
0: was that your rotation the second time round
1: yeah, so that was normal, yep that was a and that's what they had done, like I said through Iraq and Bosnia, just a rolling six month cycle, but it's good in one sense because it's predictable. you also get really familiar with the area you're operating in, so when I came out the second time. Not much was new. I just had to get you know up to date with what you know perhaps what the ground situation was and what had changed in the last six months. But it, it meant I knew where everything was on the base. I knew where all the landing sites were, and it, yeah, that was pretty good for, in terms of familiarity and not losing some of that those key you know the knowledge. yet.
0: Yeah. You haven't lost the SA of of the era. Tell me about going home after the first time being on operations because that was. That's probably, you know, it's a, it's a shock to move to another country. That's the first thing from Australia to the UK. And while they're very, very similar, they're still very different at the same time, but then going on operations into a war zone and then going back to the UK, tell me about your mindset there. Were you like, man, you guys have got no idea what's happening on the other side of the world. People getting shot up, blown up, dying, all of that stuff. And then you come back to society and life's just going about, you know, life.
1: Yeah. Um, well, interesting as you said. So, being in the UK, I was away from family and mm. obviously my Australian friends. I made plenty of Brit friends. So, in one sense, going away and coming back, it was almost it was a bit of an anticlimax. Yeah, it always I didn't is. Have anyone to? Yeah. You know, particularly like my mum and dad and brother. They're my very close family. It wasn't like you know come back and um they were there to you know welcome you back and all that. So there was almost a bit of an anticlimax. But then. I would try and go home. I would try and fly to Australia after my tours because that was when most people got a few weeks of downtime. So I would go home then. And even in the UK or in Australia, it was a bit surreal because I think I noticed it once when I was, um, I think I was at the shops and I was standing in a shopping center and I was getting groceries or something. And I was just looking at the shelves and I was comparing something and I was like, what does it matter? I was like, Why am I comparing this to that? Who cares if it's fifty cents more? I was like, just just put the thing in the basket and get it done. I was just it was it was a bit of a funny a funny state to go back to, to to just go back to doing the mundane things that you have to do in life, but I was like, I can't be bothered doing this. This is this is like inconsequential. So I really (laughs) it it took a bit of adjusting to um realize that no, I actually psyche, huh? Really yeah,
0: yeah. Stuff happens it's like, I remember coming back from operations in the Navy once. I think we'd been away for like 10 months. It was a long time. We've been away to the, it was in 1996 when we went to the, to the Gulf and yeah. we came back and it's a long trip home. It took two weeks to get from Oman on the southern part of the Gulf all the way tracking south to Mauritius and then tracking across to Stirling, you know, east to Stirling and then around the bottom of Australia back to Sydney. And it was exactly that transit, but it was a long time to get home. And you kind of unwind from the trip. You've had enough of being on that trip and doing that stuff, and you're on your way back. And I remember coming into Sydney Harbour and all the fanfare there as the Navy does, which is really awesome when you come home. It's kind of nice to come home like that. And then being picked up and driving across the Anzac Bridge and up Victoria Road. I can remember sitting in the car, looking out the window, going, man, you know, I've been gone for like nearly a year. I've been on operations. I've done all these things but nothing's changed. Yeah. the like bloody Sydney traffic. And I re- yeah. really remember the traffic like kind of like, man, you know, like surely there was, there was, you had a whole year to fix it and you haven't fixed it still. It still sucks. Yeah,
1: nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah. I think though, um, nothing might've changed, but you've changed. And I think that's totally. the thing. Yeah. Often you come home and everyone else is the same and you know, everything else is the same, but you're just, you might not be outwardly obvious, but inwardly, you are different. And then, you know, like I say, it takes a bit to adjust to going back to normal, normal things that you used to do. And now you're just, you know, a different person.
0: Yeah, very, very, very common thing that happens to serving military personnel. Take me back to Afghanistan on your mm. second tour. Is there one or two crazy go-all-in helicopter pilot stories that you can share with us? Gosh. Because it's sortie after sortie after sortie. Is there one yeah. that's stands
1: out? Not sure if it was my second or it might have been my third one, I think, in my third tour when I was um, as an aircraft captain and formation commander on this particular day. We always flew in pairs and then we had the escort above us. So at this particular site, and there is a story I remember well, My guess my dash two, so the second aircraft, had gone to the site first because we would often do that because as you went to different sites, the one that was in front would go first and then you just swap positions. But you were still like lead and wing, I guess, or one and two. You still kept, same numbering. So they'd gone into a site, dropped some troops off, and then it was our turn to go to the same site. We had some more people to drop off. And I got some intelligence through the Apache relayed, some intelligence from one of the overhead warning aircraft that, you know, sits up there and gathers up all the ceiling. electronic signals and everything else going on. Yep. And they picked up some radio, some ICOM chatter from the enemy and – they'd said, we're going to target the next aircraft that lands here. And so the Apache passed that on to me. And obviously we're only a couple of minutes from landing ourselves. And it was one of those moments. I was like, right. That's me. (laughs) Yeah. I was like. That's "That's, my number. (laughs) Bingo. And obviously the crew, yeah, the crew is like dead silent. And, you know, that kind of just hangs in the air a little bit. (laughs) Um, And then you go, all right, right. What are we going to do with this? And being the aircraft captain and, you know, formation commander that was my job to make that decision and again going all in I you know I went through the process of weighing up pros and cons the intelligence I'd previously received you know the capabilities of the enemy their their weaponry they had in the area why we had the people on board what was the purpose of our you know our mission there and I spoke out loud because you know my awareness of my team members you know was such that I knew what they needed to hear and the quickest way to get that done was speaking out loud they didn't say a word. I spoke through my um, decision-making process, came out with a decision at the other end, and my decision was to continue. We were going to continue, and we were going to land. And literally, the only word I got from my crew, I just said, "You know, is everyone okay with that?" Or whatever I said. I don't know if it was quite that. I might have been. That's my decision. Is that okay? Or no, it's not. I wasn't asking if that was okay. It might have been along the lines of, "You know, does anyone have any any points?" And it was just not a resounding nope. They were happy and, you know, in we went. So literally the decision-making probably only took 15 Mm -hmm. seconds and, like I said, we're only a couple of miles away, but we went in and landed. But I can tell you that out of all the landings, that was probably the most adrenaline-filled landing I had because I knew something was coming, not the fact that, you know, we are just operating and something surprised us. We knew that something was probably coming for this one. So, you know, Mm -hmm. eyes on stalks. Dead silent. Flying. No, so I was no, I was the aircraft captain. The pilot flying was beside me, yes. and uh, he was doing the handling and did very well. And uh, I can tell you that we did land with no issue, dropped mm-hmm. our troops off, and got out of there as quickly as we could because um, and nothing happened. No, nothing happened. But I can tell you that you know, like I all about time stretching out. I can almost remember what I was flying over as we were looking out the window towards that landing site. So, but again, like you say, going all in. Th- you know, it was all or nothing there, and yeah. once the decision's done, it's done, and this is what we're doing. So, yeah, yeah that was a biggie. We had, we had about 10 troops on board as well, so, you know, not only the four, you know, the four of us, you know, the 10 on board, were, you know, they were lives in my hand making this decision, not to mention the aircraft, yeah. and then the flown. If we'd ever been shot down, it then causes a, you know, a massive issue for the, the troops, but that was probably one of the biggest decisions I made whilst in Afghanistan.
0: Nice one. Nice one. I think you highlight something really important in aviation there. And I think most people can relate to this when I, when I say, and you, you probably agree with me as well. Someone asked me recently, what does it feel like to fly an airplane? And it's like, well, I could teach you to fly an airplane in about 10 minutes. You hold the controls, you hold the throttle, you look out the window at the horizon, you'll fly in a straight line. Flying an airplane is easy to do. And I'm, and I assume that once you learn how to fly a helicopter and you've got those hands and feet skills, it's yeah. relatively benign and simple to do as well. Landing. Yeah. Is the hard part, of course. You know, it's a different kettle of fish. That's a skill that has to be developed. But once you've developed the skill of landing, you know, either in crosswinds or what you're describing there, getting in and out of little tight places and dangerous places, that's a skill that can be developed. But I don't think flying an airplane or well, I assume flying a helicopter is hard. You probably tell me that it's not hard. Flying an airplane or a helicopter is about making decisions. Yeah. And those decisions is that's what aviating is. You know, the old adage, aviate, navigate, communicate. Aviating is, well, yeah, it's flying the thing, hands and feet for sure, but it's really about making a decision and sticking with that decision.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's about, they talk about, you know, the situational awareness and as you get more experienced, hopefully your situational awareness gets bigger, but it is. It's about taking in all the different bits of information, not just, the physical flying in a straight line—it's all the other things that go along with it at the same time that that makes it as complicated as it is, yeah. But a challenge, but then really, you know, rewarding when you do get it right. So I've been deployed a
0: couple of times on navy ships and stuff. And obviously, when you when you go in the navy, you're with a seahawk and with a squirrel on a guided missile frigate. When I was in the uh-huh. navy back in the day, when I was in the <laughs> navy back then, <laughs> I can say that now because it was a long time ago. Hunt for Not that COVID. Hunt for October stuff, you know, like (laughs) FFGs, like that. It's not air warfare destroyer time anymore. Um, (laughs) There was often, well, not often, but there was a couple of times. There was a few aircraft emergencies. I guess I could count them on one hand over the period of time that I was in the in the navy that that actually happened. Did you ever have an emergency?
1: Yes, I had a couple. One would have been we were night flying at this particular point, and we actually got engine surging, which meant we actually shut down one of our engines and continued single engine Mm -hmm. didn't continue single engine to um, a landing site in Afghanistan. We went back to the main operating base. Yeah. So that was one, but again, so many things go through your mind, you know, it's the middle of the night. There's not a lot to see because we were over one of the desert portions and all those things briefly flip through your mind of, Oh, what if the other one goes, where are we? What's (laughs) the nearest place? Mm. Middle of the night, you know, auto rotation at night into the desert in enemy territory. It's, you know, A lot of things that go through, but like you said before, that's got to go completely out of your mind, get rid of it, and just focus on the flying. So that was that one. I did have another one, yeah, on a big amphibious operation in the Mediterranean because that's Mm. where the Brits do a lot of their stuff, and we'd had an engine fuel issue, so we'd gone into manual fuel, so it ended up being a manual fuel landing on board the ship. So that's always a bit challenging. So one person's flying and then you've got another person manually feeding because the levers are above your head, manually feeding in fuel to keep the RPM up. So yeah. So another challenge, but at least there was no enemy there shooting at us.
0: So. Did you look at your mate and go, dude, don't get this wrong. You know, a bit more, yeah. A little, I need a bit more power. Open that up a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And that was, you know, that's, that's a really good effort there between the crew because literally yeah. the pilot flying tells, you know, they have to preempt what they're going to do so that the person feeding the fuel in, because it's two different people so he's saying yeah pulling in some more power more power so you're trying to lead with putting in more fuel and then they might be like no reducing reducing so you know it's just that constant communication between the crew to get that right were you flying or handling
0: the fuel valve i was flying that one and what yeah. happened when you got on the on the ship we just look at each other and go far out
1: babe. well we actually got in trouble because <laughs> we took off again <laughs> because it was like a single spot ship and that wasn't where our maintenance personnel were or um, anything like that so we we dropped off what we had to drop off which was quite crucial what we were dropping off and then we went back to one of their um their big amphibious ships so there was much discussion around that decision that was made um you know do you black a deck of a ship that doesn't have any maintenance personnel on it or do you move again because that is an emergency when you're doing manual fuel but yeah, so we took off again. So obviously taking off then with the power requirements there was quite tricky. But yeah, that yeah. was I'm um, grinning because it did create a lot of discussion between what you would or wouldn't do in that situation. But that's what it's all about. Nice. I, I
0: remember when I was in the in the Navy when the Persian got back in the day. They <laughs> we were right up against Iraq in the KAA there and I was lucky enough to go up in a sortie in the squirrel and we just used that mm. thing, use our Mark One eyeball to kinda of try and find the bad guys coming out, enforcing the the sanctions against the Iraqis at the time in 1996, which was debilitating and crippling for their economy and their people. It was pretty uncool. But anyway, the the UN told us to do that, so we went and did it. And I remember on the way back from that sortie, we used to have an American Sea King come out and deliver the mail to us back in the day. Yeah. Before we had internet and email, we'd have physical mail. And the desert duck came over and, and landed. And as you say, it kind of took the deck, blacked the deck, and we were like on fumes. Right right at the very end of the fuel and it's kind of ready to tap into the reserves and it's like, man, come on, get off the get off, move out of the way yeah. sort of thing. And I remember landing on the back of the of the ship and it was kind of just at the last minute sort of thing and very much discussion of what's who said that he could come here now when you knew we were out there in the battle budgie doing that thing and making yeah. all that happen. It's like just one of those things. You just gotta deal with it as an aviator, right?
1: Yeah, that's it, because it doesn't matter how well you plan something. You know, things change and, you know, you, you start replanning and backup planning and, like you say, emergency there, what's the minimum fuel I can be at before I have to go somewhere else? So you sound like you were right there.
0: Lucky there's – unfortunately, on a ship, there's nowhere else to go and you know yeah. yourself as a pilot, when you take off from a ship, you realise how small that ship actually is, especially if it are a frigate or something like that and how vast the ocean can be. It's like if you're going to ditch the thing, make sure you're close by because it's a long swim.
1: Yeah, and particularly when the ships move and you come back and they're not where you thought they'd be, and then there comes that little moment of panic that you've only got a certain amount of fuel and can't find the ship. So, yeah, I guess that's one of the harsh realities of being a, I guess, a navy pilot is that there is a chance you may have to put it in the ocean, <laughs> which is not good in any in any way you look at that. It's not good.
0: Lucky it doesn't. Ha- it's a very rare event, isn't it? Very rare. Yeah. Very
1: rare, but it does happen. It happens. Very-
0: it's a testament to the machines that we fly and, and the maintainers that look after yep. them as well.
1: How reliable they are,
0: yeah. They're really good. So I just want to shift gears a little bit. You had a, an awesome time in the UK. You are lucky enough to go on ops not once, not twice, three bloody times. Yeah. My God, that's so lucky. And, again, the people listening think that, they, that we're <laughs> crazy, but that's what you want to do when you're in the military. So really experience. And tell me, my God, I'm going to have to drop the name. You met Prince Charles, right?
1: I did, I did. So
0: loyalty. What's that like?
1: That so, in terms of my non-flying part of my career, that's a highlight without a doubt, and probably the, I think the best time because I met him a couple of times because Prince Charles is actually the patron of Commando Helicopter Force. Oh right. So both he, both he and his brother learned to fly in the military with Commando Helicopter Force. So they've got. So Prince Charles has an ongoing relationship there. And he he attended a couple of our big formal functions. He was our guest of honour. But also...
0: Prince Andrew as well?
1: No, not Prince Andrew, just yes. Prince, Charles. Prince Charles. So Prince Andrew did come and visit the guys when we were in Afghanistan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I did Prince Charles on a separate visit. Cool. But I think when I got my... When I was awarded my Afghanistan campaign medal from Prince Charles, that was the highlight. We... Because we went down as a, as, you know, a formed body from Commander Helicopter Force, got the early morning bus, you know, at 6 or 5 a.m. departure so we could get to London, formed up in Wellington Barracks and then with full band, we marched out of Wellington Barracks, which is just to the side of Buckingham Palace, and then around in front of Buckingham Palace and, you know, all the tourists are there looking, you know, clapping, taking photos and they closed off the mall for us to march down the awesome. mall and then left into Clarence House. And that was I think it's the actually the only photo where I'm not smiling because I'm trying to be really serious as we're, you know, marching down the mall with all sorts of cameras and photos going. So I was like, right, gotta be serious here. But then we got in and got awarded our medals and there is a classic picture of me with Prince Charles awarding me my medal and I've got, you know, the biggest smile on my face. And I think everyone else is still being really serious, but I was just yeah.
0: Did he know you were an Aussie? Because the Australian Navy uniform is very, almost identical to the British Navy uniform. Did he know you were an Aussie?
1: Yeah, well, only because, so you've got, the only difference is the Australian on your shoulder. And the other medals that I had were not ones he was familiar with. And, you know, he made a comment about me being Australian and what was I doing there pretty much. So So he gave
0: you your your medals, your awards and stuff like that. Was there a little reception afterwards? Did he stick around? Did you get to chat to him?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't get to chat to him, though. There there was a reception in Clarence House, so he was in there and he mingled. He mingled for a good sort of half hour to an hour afterwards because people had their families with them and and all sorts. So I didn't. I had a representative from the High Commission there as my my escort or my support or whatever you want to call him. As your minder, as your entourage. Yeah, probably trying to keep me under control so I didn't uh, drink too much and get outrageous at the party. But, no, I was well-behaved,
0: (laughs) well-behaved. Fantastic. And and I understand that you were the, the lead with the Jubilee as well. Tell us a little bit about
1: Oh, it. yeah. I almost forgot as we were chatting there. That, that was great as well. So they had four escort vessels right up close to the Queen's Barge. Mm-hmm. And one was led by the British, one was Canadian, one was New Zealand or Kiwis and, and one was Aussie. So I was selected to be the officer in charge of that vessel. So again, that was a week of workups towards it and practice and then on the day was just amazing that you know crowds were 10 15 deep in parts going down the Thames hundreds of boats and you know we were literally about five meters off the rear right of the barge and you know again an opportunity that will never come along again for me and I don't know how I would ever top that so yeah an- another great piece of history to have been a part of. So if, if for
0: anyone listening, thinking about joining the military and not sure about it, there are some unbelievable things that you get to experience. And I never got to experience royalty with the British like that, but I did work a lot with the British. And I think in the Navy, you do that a lot more than other forces. I'm not sure about the Air Force. I've never been in a RAF, but not that much with the Army. But certainly in the Navy, you work with other militaries a lot. Yeah. After a couple of years in the UK, did you feel a deep affinity for the Poms or were you ready to get out of there and come home?
1: I kind of came back kicking and screaming. I really wanted to stay. So I tried to extend my posting over there. I then thought, well, if I can't do that, how about I take some leave without pay? And then once I got back to Australia, I tried to transfer to the Royal Navy. I tried to do all sorts. So I loved my time over there. I loved Commander Helicopter Forces as a unit, what they did, what the culture was like, and the operational tempo, which is not for everyone. I can tell you there were plenty of people there who, you know, we're fed up with that after you know ten years of it. But for me, that that was what I really wanted. So yeah, came back kicking and screaming. I still go back to the UK at least once a year, sometimes twice.
0: Nice. Um, Tell me what it's like to come back to the Australian Navy after. It's, it's totally, totally, totally different. It's a giant adjustment. Did you come back? Where did you come back to? Nara.
1: So I actually came back to Canberra and I went and did a master's. So I was selected to go on like technical staff. A college i guess it's now called capability and technology management college yep. and did a degree so a masters in capability and technology management yep. which subject matter wise was really interesting just for me literally i came back i think the end of december and the third week in jan or something i started this masters which was full-time one week of leave in the middle of the year and I was just not in the place for that. So, and, and many of my course members can attest to that one. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it takes the staff to come
0: back from an operation, but then it takes an adjustment to come back from another bloody country as well as yeah. different yeah, things I, happening there.
1: Yeah. I had a lot of things going on that year. So um, I gave the staff a bit of a hard time. I think I was a bit of a difficult person to uh, manage, but I got through the year and passed and, you know, did all, all that was required and then took some time off, went back to the UK. But then I really thought, right, I need to get flying again because that's what I loved. That's what I was so keen to get back to in the UK. So I thought, let's just get back into the flying here, and hopefully that'll help me adjust.
0: And, it, and did my- the Navy give you a nice career path once you'd come home? So you got your masters. That's fantastic. That's a, like a almost like a reward. That's unheard of in the Navy. First of all, you go on exchange and then operations, and really? then now you come home and go back to school and
1: get paid for it. My gosh. And yeah. Right no, I- off. Well, so that was a great opportunity. The Masters was, like I said, and and they did have a career path planned for me there, which would have meant using the Masters and being in Canberra and getting into the project world. I just think, like we've talked about, perhaps mentally, emotionally, that's not where I was at. And, like, yeah, ruffled a few feathers and caused some problems and fought really hard just to go back to flying, just to something I knew that I thought would be what I wanted and, and hopefully settle me down a bit. So. And I did, and I, you know, got to do a few more good things. I got to be on board HMS Canberra as the flight operations officer on that, and then I came off that, and I was the operations officer at 808 Squadron. So you know, got right into how everything runs and the planning side of things, which was good. But I just kind of never settled back to perhaps accepting that 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 was where I was going to be, and the desk job was coming, no doubt about that. And <laughs> so it just all came together took about five years to work that out but came together last year and I thought no you know this isn't going to be forever for me and also I've got some injured knees so that doesn't help me so it all just came together and I thought right time to go I need a change
0: yeah, yeah. before we leave the navy career tell me about the mrh90 that's like probably the the leading most sophisticated machine that's out there in service right what what's it like flying that thing that's I see that they fly past my window here all the time, and every time I see one of them, I go, yeah, man, the government made a good decision getting a hold of that thing, right?
1: Yeah, they're pretty cool, pretty big, impressive. They're all glass cockpit inside, so it's almost like flying an airliner. Mm. It's got an amazing autopilot. You could, if you programmed it correctly, you could literally just lift the aircraft to the hover. It would depart. It would climb. It could go off on a navigation route for an hour or two and then come back. Airbus, right? Yep, couple to a, an instrument approach and pull itself up in the hover, like a 40-foot hover. So Amazing. systems are phenomenal. As a pilot, though, you've got to program it correctly. Otherwise, it will go where you programmed it to go. <laughs> you, you will work out when you're partway through a nav and you're like, why am I going in this direction? You've done something wrong. So capable in that sense, troops in the back, you know, can be up to 20 personnel in the back, including your two crewmen. It's got air conditioning, which is a big step up. Like seeking in Afghanistan, no air conditioning, no heating. Uh, so, got some creature comforts, and I guess from a pilot's perspective, is much more user friendly in that sense. So, powerful yeah. machine. Yeah, 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 pretty powerful. I'm um, trying to think. I'm not sure I ever got to use it quite like I use the seeking in Afghanistan, right to its limits. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, capable, powerful. You know, and I know use it on board the ships as well. So good for that. And were you part of the
0: team on HMAS Canberra doing the operational readiness evaluations to deploy helicopters on that ship?
1: Yeah, so I didn't do the very first, like, first-of-class flight trials for the MRH to be used on the ship, but I did get involved getting the ship signed up to be using the, um, to be operational ready, yes. I was on board in 2015 and a bit of 16, so yeah, right when they were going through that evaluation. And that was pretty cool, doing, you know, exercises with the Army, having the troops on board up there off North Queensland. yeah Yeah. it's all a
0: little bit different driving around in australia than it is driving around in afghanistan right
1: it is it's a little more comfortable and like we said no one's shooting at you uh, but still got some challenges yeah
0: yeah new ship new aircraft new stuff but all still the same role same thing right
1: yeah yeah same role and all that i guess like you said though being on a new ship it's a whole new capability for the royal australian navy that we haven't had in a couple of decades so Everything is new, you know. Everyone's learning as they go along, which has its challenges, but also, you know, good to be a part of that, to, and now see the end result.
0: Yeah, it's fabulous, fabulous mm-hmm. capability that he has got now as well. It's really cool. So tell me about your transition. Transiting from the military is bloody hard, and you're still transiting now. I can tell. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, hey, yeah. Um,
0: hey, uh, you're right. You're good.
1: Well, yeah. I think I think I probably did a lot of my transitioning perhaps in those last five years it it was more like a transition from operations in UK to where we are now and where I was in Australia that was the big transition for me and then that probably took me those five years to accept that going forward was never going to be like what I'd done it took me years to work that out and now having left I think one of my saving graces now is that I left to go to a job that I was quite interested in. I had thought about taking six months off, but as my parents probably rightly assessed, if I did that, I would, you know, I probably would never have gone back to work properly. So at least I've gone to a job with the Australian Transport Safety Bureau as an accident investigator. And it's an interesting job. It uses my experience as a pilot, my crew resource management experiences, my human factors experiences. So it's using all of that, but in a different context. And I think stepping away from the flying was kind of key to that because I'm always trying to relive what I've done. And unless I stepped away from it enough, I was still going to be comparing it to what i had done. So that's what I'm trying now. So we'll see.
0: It's very hard to close the chapters of your life. And I've, My son is 17. And for the folks that listen to this podcast, often you hear me talk about him sometimes. And he's about to leave school. He's about to go out into the big wide world. And I'm really envious of him because he's about to do it all again. I'm, man, I wish I could do all... I wish you could experience all the things that I I had such a good time. And it's hard to close the chapters on those amazing times in your life and, and move forward. But, you know, as one door closes, the other one opens. But you can also reopen that other door and look back in there every now and then because that's what a door is meant to do you know it's kind of cool to look back over your shoulder and remember those things and enjoy them but i think as as for me as i've gotten a little bit older i'm like yeah well that's over my body can't handle that infantry stuff anymore anyway and probably the same in and around flying as well same experience right
1: yeah and i think that you've touched on something that's really key that you've got to get to a point where you realize that you can't always do Mm. those incredible things and realizing that when you're at the pinnacle of your career, that's not how it's going to be forever. It's I'm not saying it's easy to realise because I would love to go back and relive what I've done. But at some point, you've got to accept that you can't always be able to do that and, and then try and find something else that you're interested in to look forward to.
0: It's a very hard transition for me to leave. My last posting was at the Parachute School right next door to Nauro at Albatross. Yeah, you yeah. Know that Well, you know, go on skydiving four, five, six, sometimes eight times a day for a large percentage of the year is an incredible job. Right. Um, you get paid yeah. to go skydiving for a living for him, You get paid to fly around in helicopters for a living. Yeah. That's a kind of like a that's common. People do that a lot but skydiving for a living, unless you're an instructor or unless you're in the military as an instructor, there's a really hard transition to leave something like that behind and then to try and find a new mission to try and find something else in your life. So I really struggled with my transition mm-hmm. from the military. It took me four or five years to realize that i didn't have to be on time i didn't have to be like that i didn't have to be an overbearing boss and even today i'm still a little bit like that i can't help myself it's just where i grew up
1: yeah and and i've certainly not lost some of those military traits at all i still do things at work and people look at me and i'm like oh so you know whoops different audience you don't understand what i've said or like you say i'll turn up early to meetings and people are like what are you doing the meeting doesn't start for five minutes and i'm like i know i'm here i'm (laughs)
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So tell me about the shift gears. Tell me about what you're working on as an accident investigator for ATSB, but mm. you're also you also got a speaking business. What's it like to get up in front of a audience of people that haven't served in the military and tell your stories. They must be like, "Wow." Cuz I'm like that and I'm an ex-military guy. And I'm like, well, <sighs> "Must be effective."
1: Yeah, and I love it. Like you said, the speaking side of things, I love getting up and sharing my story because I always find that something will resonate with the audience. Different people take different things away from it, and sometimes it's just seeing someone who's done some really amazing things but realising that they've started as a you know, as a 17-year-old at high school not knowing what they want to do with a career or that they're a normal person standing in front of you and they've had failures along the way. Often just sharing that with people makes them think, well, actually, whatever it is that's holding them back and stopping them going all in, isn't as big a deal and they should just do it give it a go and there's ways to make things happen and often that's that's a you know a big part of my story is getting to where i got to not just the exciting stuff i did the journey to get there it's
0: nice well we've talked a lot on this podcast about where you've been and the history of the stuff that you've done which has been really incredible and i really appreciate you sharing that with us what's happening where are you going what's happening in the next 18 months if i revisit you halfway along the way there in nine months time where are you going to be
1: Oh, that's a good question. I know at least I should still be in Australia, probably still in Canberra because, as you know, I've just started that role as an accident investigator with the uh, Transport Safety Bureau. So something I'm keen to get more involved in and that's what's happening. So I've done six months already and now I'm just starting to get into getting my own investigations and, and um, going down that path. So that's starting to get really interesting, which is good. So I'll still be with them in 18 months. I am like you said working more with the public speaking business so that will still continue to be a feature of my life then hopefully you know as I'm working towards that expanding the audiences and where I've you know what I've been involved in uh, Mm -hmm. because that is something I'm really passionate about also I guess I'm doing a bit of you know trying to get property around the place here in Canberra so you know that just complicates my life with buying, selling, talking to counsel, trying to subdivide all sorts. And as I've said to you before, I do like to fill my time in, so never a dull moment. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'd, I'd love to
0: maybe bring you back on the show in a couple of months' time and talk more about your speaking business and yeah. your audience is it. And let's see if we can amplify that message and, and get it out there for you. I do have a question about being an accident investigator. I'm sure mm-hmm. that almost every person that's listening to this podcast has seen the show air crash investigation and there's so much that goes on behind an accident and the tragedy and all of those stuff how has that been on you emotionally have you had to make some adjustments when you're looking at accidents and you know you've got to put your detective's hat on and find out all of those things but underlying all of that is is a tragic event that must be hard to deal with
1: it is I guess I've got the benefit of having been in the military and perhaps already dealt with some of those more difficult circumstances, but it does, having been a pilot for however many years now, you know, 15 years, I'm now on the other side of the fence and seeing the accidents and going to wreckage sites. And yeah, you interview next of kin, you get witness statements, you interview witnesses, and it does really bring home actually the reality of what, the impact when things go wrong so but then i guess the other side of that is once you do all the investigation and get all the evidence and you create your report hopefully you know your aim is to prevent that the same thing happening again down the track so maybe having the sadness attached to it is a real good motivator you know to producing a product that is you know can be used by the, the aviation community and preventing it again
0: yeah i think it's one of those rare jobs that has extreme polarities in that you're dealing with Accidents and people's lives and people that have lost their lives, which is horrendously tragic. But on the other side of that, you get the opportunity to prevent that from ever happening again, despite the fact that that's happened. So the huge polarities there, huge swings. It sounds like you're pretty extreme in what you do with everything that you do there.
1: Yes. And like I say, I like that sort of challenge. So
0: <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Last question. Tell me about your daily non negotiables. You're super busy. You're always there's always something going on. I'm I'm interested to know a little life hack and what's happening behind Kate there that makes her gives her so much energy and motivation on a daily basis. Tell me about your non negotiable. Well,
1: when we say non negotiable, so it should be non negotiable. Occasionally, I do drop some of those good habits, and I you know I've got to pick them back up. One non negotiable is the exercise thing for me. I guess maybe it's because I've been military. We we have done. I've done exercise all my life. Even from when I was a kid, I always played sport nearly every day of the week. And then in the military, you know, there's a whole, you know, good sports around and great facilities. So, you know, exercise was a large part of my life then. Now I do try and keep it up because I know I am much more effective. I am a better person and the effects of me exercising are amazingly positive. I can tell the difference in myself when I don't and other people can as well. So some form of exercise in a day is a non-negotiable, like I say. Sometimes doesn't happen. But it also it gives me my five minutes to myself to tune out or to get away from work because I can get to the point where I will work all day. I will devote every minute because and, – and some of those big goals that aren't work-related or they might be personal-related or, you know, even my speaking that's not my primary job, that, you know, it's something I'm passionate about and, you know, developing, I can devote all my time to it and then – it There's just not a balance there, and I drop the um i I drop the exercise, I just become less productive, less happy, less awake, and alert so that that's one of my non negotiables I know is something I need to do
0: you sound like a lot like me in work. I don't really believe in a work life balance, I think there's just life and you you happen to work and you live your life and for me also exercise I'm not sure if it's military just the way I was brought up like you but Exercise is definitely a daily non-negotiable. And I find that that actually does balance me out. And I think maybe that's because it's exactly what you said. It's time out for yourself. So that's a really kind of cool validation of what I'm doing as well. So I'm doing the same thing as you. That's, that's good. Yeah. I'm getting where I want to go. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Kat, well, thank you so much for sharing it. And thanks so much for coming on the Golden podcast. We really appreciate your company today. And being so giving and so sharing with your stories there as well. If people want to connect with you, where can they find out more about you, your business and your speaking business as well?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think the best place to go is I've got a website. So just www.katemanari.com.au and I'm sure on your podcast, they'll be able to find the spelling of my name. Mm -hmm. But it's got information on, I guess, my career, the high points. It's also got some more information on some of the topics I like to present on. And then go from there, send me an email via that and yeah, we can connect that way.
0: All right, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that that link is included in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your service. You've done an amazing job for our country, representing us with those uh, POMs over there and really appreciate you doing that for us and for sharing your story. Well, that just about wraps up for the Goal In podcast today. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you heard today, don't forget to leave us a review as well. We've also got a Facebook group, a Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter. So don't forget to meet up with us in social media as well. Well, thanks again, Kate. We'll Thank you.
1: you very much, Robert.
0: Speaking with you soon. Bye for now. We
1: yeah, will do. Bye-bye.